Good evening and welcome to the money program. Tonight on the money program, we're going to look at money. Lots of it on film and in the studio. Some of it in nice piles, others in lovely clanky bits of loose change. Some of it neatly counted into fat little hundreds, delicate fibers stuffed into bulging wallets, nice crisp clean checks, pert pieces of copper coinage thrust deep into trouser pockets, romantic foreign money rolling against the thigh with rough familiarity, beautiful wayward curlicued banknotes, filigree copper plating cheek by jowl with tumbling hexagonal milled edges rubbing gently against the terse leather of beautifully balanced bank books. <laughs> Sorry. I love money. All money. I've always wanted money to handle, to touch, the smell of the rainwashed florin, the lure of the lira, the glitter and the glory of the guinea, the romance of the rouble, the feel of the franc, the heel of the Deutschmark, the cold antiseptic sting of the Swiss franc, and the sunburned splendor of the Australian dollar. I've got. 90,000 pounds of cash I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots and lots of lira now. The Deutschmark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as beautiful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a smash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money, money, money. money. There is nothing like a newly minted money, 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 money. Everyone must thank her for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, 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 round. You can keep your watch's ways, for it's only just a phase. It's money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. Welcome to the Noted Podcast. We have Bitcoin Core contributor Matt Corallo on. Matt, how are you? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. And I have my co-host here, Michael Goldstein. Well, it really, it's it's Bitstein, a.k.a. Michael Goldstein. Exactly. How you guys doing? Good. Good, good. Matt, uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, probably the best place to start is your background in Bitcoin and how you started your Bitcoin spirit journey. <laughs> yeah, um, so I've been doing mostly, I mean, I got into Bitcoin Core way back when it was just called Bitcoin uh, back in early 2011. Uh, so kind of have bounced around from various projects, always kind of contributing here and there to Bitcoin Core. Um, also, am known for a lot of work on mining prep, uh, block propagation for miners. Um, so that's compact blocks work in Bitcoin Core and also the fiber network uh, and the precursor to that, the Bitcoin relay network, um, were all work that I did to try to optimize block relay for miners. Also, more recently, you know, like I suppose everyone in the community been playing around with some lightning stuff, uh, implementing some various lightning primitives and just kind of playing around with some of that. Um, but I also did, way back in the day, in 2014, I think, the first payment channels implementation, um, which I don't think anyone ever used for anything at all, but it existed. Does that implementation enable Lightning, or is it completely separate? I, I mean, it's kind of precursor, but it's not... Um, it's not related at the protocol level. Gotcha. Uh, and I noticed that the lightning work you've been doing has been in Rust uh, and not in C++, which is what Bitcoin Core is written in. Uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I I just learned Rust, right? Like, I, you know, I'd been, people keep talking about how awesome Rust is. And so at some point I was like, well, I should learn this. Also, I should learn lightning. And so I sat down and... Uh, you know, spent some time writing a lightning implementation in Rust just to see, just to see how far I got. Um, but I mean, keep in mind, right? Rust was written to replace C++ for systems level programming for Firefox at Mozilla. Um, so in this space, it makes a lot of sense, right? So if you want to replace a C++ project that is a high efficiency systems level programming system like Bitcoin Core or like something in this space. Rust makes a ton of sense for that. Uh, if you're looking for something more high level, well, you know, it has its edges, um, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for that. But, uh, but, but I'm I'm a big fan. I like it a lot. Uh, and so we we have both a technical audience and a non-technical audience. But 
I myself, like, how would you draw to the dis distinction between systems programming and, and non-system programming, right? So what makes it so that uh, Lightning is uh, systems programming and in Rust and not in Python? Well, I mean, a lot of systems programming, when you think systems programming, you think like writing kernel code or writing, you know, writing kind of back-endy code, especially that is maybe secure, more security critical if you're looking at like kernel or Bitcoin core or something like that. But also you're looking at, you know, trying to get as much performance out of it as you can. You know, it's the key focus of Bitcoin core. It's obviously a key focus of any kind of Linux kernel or anything like that. And you're also looking at, you know, maybe manage it. Yeah, obviously also kind of all the hardware management stuff and whatnot falls into more of a systems programming angle. Um, but all of that being different from like designing a website, writing in JavaScript, writing a, you know, web, uh, whatever your website generator is in Ruby on Rails or something like that on the back end. All of that being more, you know, user facing program and less bare metal performance where you might be able to trade off a little bit of performance, use a higher level language uh, and get better security, better primitives, maybe it's easier to work with, stuff like that. Yeah, and we've seen, so So LND, the, I, I would say it's kind of the lightning node that is most active in its development or furthest along, is that fair? As far as I understand, yeah. Uh, and so that's written in Go, which is a arguably a systems language that was developed by Google. Kind of. Although it's kind of in between the two. Yeah, it is a little bit more in between. Um, it, it, it has some very high-level primitives, and it does, is not as performant often as something like Rust or C++, um, at least in my understanding. I haven't spent as much time with Go, but uh, it's, it is a bit higher level. It's not, you know, like a JavaScript-y kind of thing. But. Right, and then it exposes an... Uh, an API, a gRPC API that then we've seen uh, JavaScript developers programming against to then implement a wallet on top of it. Um, so that provides kind of more uh, high-level user-facing user interface. Uh, and so is are you going to be continuing on uh, Lightning development or? Uh, yeah, um, it's still kind of a hobby project for me to get you know, an understanding of how Lightning is work, uh, works and, like, see all of the various nuances of getting it right. Um, I'm looking for contributors. You know, if people are interested in learning Rust, interested in learning about Lightning by working on the protocol, you know, if you're not interested in learning Rust, I would suggest you go work on one of the ones that are more mature. You'll, you know, have a bigger community around them. You'll be adding more value to the ecosystem by working on something like that. Um, but if you do want to learn Rust or if for whatever reason you don't want to work on uh, LND or C Lightning or something like that, then, you know, I'd love contributors. Um, I've got some folks who've been talking about contributing and have started looking into it more. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. We'll see where it goes. But, you know, if it doesn't get a user base, it doesn't start getting contributors, then, you know, I don't, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on something that no one's using, you know. Right. And has your work uh, looking at Lightning and, and understanding it at a deeper level, has that informed some of the things that you're looking at on the Bitcoin protocol layer? Um, some. I mean, they, they are starting to mix a little bit more just, you know, as Lightning has reached beta on most of the clients and they've started being more uh, used, they can kind of take a step back and start to push some of the stuff upstream that they want in the protocol. So, you know, they... The uh, LND folks came up with uh, a, a better replacement for SPV syncing for uh, the way SPV nodes connect and download uh, chain data on the network, uh, which is really exciting. And, and now kind of as people are going back and forth a little bit on design elements of that and certainly, you know, being aware of all of the requirements that the Lightning folks have for this protocol that inform their design decisions is definitely helpful in those discussions. Um, they also... Uh, recently published the, the L2 spec, which comes with it, uh, proposed changes to the Bitcoin protocol uh, that soft fork wise, um, which is exciting. Uh, I can't say that I've spent all that much time working with uh, L2 spec and thinking about some of the uh, new design work that they have there. Although the 
particular protocol proposal that they have, the SIGHASH no input, is a relatively old proposal that's been bounced around a lot. So there's kind of been a lot of discussion already around that. But certainly, being exposed to what people are doing in the Lightning space is definitely helping some of those discussions, even if it's mostly coming from the Lightning community, trying to push things upstream into the Bitcoin protocol. You brought up SPV, and I think this is an important topic. Uh, first of all, because Satoshi mentions it in the white paper, right? And so uh, second, because it has implications for scaling and then for Bitcoin's trust model and privacy. Um, do you want to get into like what SPV is generally like today and the limitations with that at a high level? And then uh, the improvements that are emerging from Lightning. Yeah, I think SPV is one of the like interesting things right now because it's kind of it is morphed, right? So when SPV was first invented to some extent uh, and first actually implemented, was I believe the mobile wallet, the Bitcoin J based uh, Andreas Schildbach wallet. For those of the old schoolers, probably still have that on their phone. I think it was the first mobile Bitcoin wallet. Um, but that model was always you connect to the regular peer-to-peer -peer network, you, know, you make your eight connections or whatever, uh, you download the headers from those, uh, all of those random nodes on the network. Uh, when it was first created, you actually downloaded all the blocks, even though you didn't verify them, and you just kind of threw them away after you'd parsed them and looked for your own transactions. Uh, later, there was this mode, uh, I forget the BIP number, but this bloom filtering mode where full nodes today still will, if you send them uh, what's called a bloom filter, which is uh, a, a filter that you can put elements in, but it has a false positive rate. So I'll get to that in a second. Uh, if you send them this filter and then you ask them for a bunch of blocks, they will actually only give you the transactions that match the filter. And so this filter, because it has this false positive rate in it, that means you know, when you send them a filter, you would otherwise, you know, send them your list of addresses and your, your all of the information about what transactions are in your wallet, which you don't really want to do. So instead, because you can tune this false positive rate, you can turn it up a little bit. When a node goes and scans through a block and analyzes the block for which transactions match the filter you gave them, it will actually include a bunch of additional transactions just because of the way the filter is designed. And so that node doesn't necessarily know which transactions are yours. It just knows, well, some of these are probably theirs. In theory, it turns out that spec was horribly designed. It is completely broken. And the privacy guarantees that it was supposed to have really just aren't there. They're like garbage. So while you know some nodes have some wallets have continued to use that, that model of connecting to nodes on the peer-to-peer -peer network and using this bloom filtering technique more nodes have moved towards the kind of Electrum model where you have a, you select a server, you say, okay, I'm going to trust this server and I am going to de-anonymize myself to them, but they're going to filter the blocks for me and filter the transactions for me and give me all the information that's relevant to me instead of using this thing on the peer-to-peer -peer network where turns out all of the privacy that it was intended to have, it doesn't actually have. And it is a whole lot more complicated to you know connect to the network and track all the headers uh, and have download logic across different peers. What if the peers are malicious? You have to handle all of these cases. Uh, that's a whole lot more complicated. So that's kind of the state it's in today, right? There's a few wallets that are this peer-to-peer -peer model, and then there are more wallets that are this kind of centralized server model where the server provides you the transactions you want, even if you have the keys. And then now the Lightning folks are proposing to replace this Bloom filter design with something that's a lot more, hopefully, you know, it has a lot better privacy, even if it's a little bit less efficient, but also reduces DOS attacks against full nodes. So that the Bloom filtering stuff that exists today is super heavyweight on full nodes. And if you have a ton of SPV clients syncing from you, you know, they beat the crap out of your disks and your CPU is pegged and it, it's not great. So their design is to instead flip this. So instead of sending the filter that you have uh, to a full node and say, hey, please scan the block for all the transactions that match this filter. Instead, you have a filter that is created by the full node over a block and sent to you. And then you can look at the filter of the block and say, oh, okay, 
do any of my addresses exist in this filter? And thus, is it possible that one of my transactions is in this block? And then you can just download the whole block. Now that does have drawbacks. Uh, it, it's way lighter, it's way easier for full nodes, but there's a ton more data for an SPV client to download. You have to download all of the filters, which while they're much smaller than the blocks are also still kind of large. And so, you know, there's also a lot of complexity about the way you download it. So there's still some going back and forth on the spec and the way these clients should be downloading these filters and the way to do it. But for clients that are, you know, have, you know, either you're like mobile in a first world country where you have a decent data plan or you're like on a computer and you want to be an SPV client that connects to the peer-to-peer -peer network, the, the spec is really exciting. Great. Uh, and why is that useful for Lightning? Um, just for uh, Lightning SPV clients, right? If you want to be an SPV client uh, and scan the blockchain, you know, obviously Lightning, you need to be pretty proactive in scanning the blockchain to avoid losing money. Um, you would like a good SPV implementation that doesn't just get rid of all of your privacy to your peers. Um, so they, they spend some time working on it. It's a pretty old idea, this idea of kind of flipping the filters and putting them in blocks instead or creating a filter around a block instead of creating a filter around the wallet. Um, but they're the first people to, uh, you know, actually bother to write up a whole BIP, create, do all the work to create the specification, define all the messages, uh, specify exactly what the filter should look like, all of that work. Against right. emergency with Lightning. Uh, and Michael, do you have any questions on on what we've been discussing? Well, I'm just curious to, uh, you know, what kind of other future developments we might see in the SPV space. It's an interesting question. So I, I think one thing that's exciting potentially, if anyone actually goes and implements it, so uh, there's a lot of really good old school crypto work on what's called private information retrieval or PIR. And PIR is essentially the ability to query, you know, some remote server has a database of something, in this case, transactions, and you can query that database without revealing the query or the results. Uh, so you could imagine using this in a scheme where a remote server, say an Electrum style server, has the full blockchain and some special index database, and you can send them a query, i.e., you know, send me the transactions that are mine, and they can do the query over the entire database and send you back the results, but they won't actually learn anything about your query. So it's completely private in your ability to find all of the transactions in the chain that are yours, but it's also still completely centralized. Um, so you can get this like kind of hybrid model of an Electrum style thing, but also be completely private, so you can avoid all of the complexity of dealing with the peer-to-peer -peer network and the additional bandwidth that comes along with that. Now, obviously, it, it scales a whole lot worse on the server side, um, but it is something that you could, like shared rate, you can uh, have a full rack of servers that responds to a query, and I'm sure a query might still take five minutes, but it is definitely within reach, and there's a ton of really great uh, research on how to implement PIR even though it has had relatively limited adoption uh, over the last, I don't know, 20 years that it's been around. But I'm, I'd, I'd really like to see someone spend some time and build a like PIR chain scanning server. Yeah, this is like in the, the realm of all of the scaling debates, um, you know, people often talk about the bandwidth issues and the storage, but uh, privacy actually doesn't seem to come up as much uh, as far as I can tell, and for instance, you know, if if I have to query blockchain.info every time I want to do anything on the blockchain, um, that lets whoever's running that know everything about what I'm doing, um, and that alone makes it hard for me to want to give up my full node. Yeah, totally. Uh, the privacy story around SPV clients today is not good. Uh, the the proposal from the Lightning folks is a lot better, but also comes with its um, significant bandwidth trade-offs. So, it, uh, you know, more work needs to be put in there. Again, I think we have solutions uh, to these problems, either using the existing proposal from the Lightning folks or uh, using something like PIR if someone were to bother to sit down and implement it. But like everything in the space, you know, 10-year-old ideas uh, just haven't been implemented yet. These are not 
not new ideas. They're not particularly clever. They're just like, yeah, let's go finally actually do this thing and put in all the work. It takes a lot of work to do stuff like this. But Well, it's easier to argue about the block size limit than it is to try to implement PIR. That's definitely the case. Uh, and then the other, I mean, so, you know, that brings up the issue of uh, centralizing nodes. But then the other problem uh, that gets a lot of attention in the space is centralized mining. Uh, and there's been, I think, some some talk about getting away from the currently very centralized situation with Bitmain, with other manufacturers getting in. And uh, what are your thoughts on mining centralization and, and the future of Bitcoin mining? Yeah, totally. I, I think, I mean, mining centralization is one of those thorny issues that is really a problem for Bitcoin in the long run, uh, especially when we start talking about scaling designs for public blockchains. All of the scaling designs we have for public blockchains that are kind of reasonable, one of the trade-offs they often make is they raise this censorship resistance that we have today or that we you know, try to have today, that we strive for today to an explicit security assumption. Right. So in Bitcoin today, if your transaction gets censored or especially if it gets censored for like, you know, over the course of a day or gets censored for a week or something, well, it might not be the end of the world. You haven't lost your money. Maybe you can get your transaction in in a month. Obviously, that would be really horrible for Bitcoin in my view, but you still don't lose your money. Right. So like it's not a complete security disaster. Whereas in something like Lightning and something like uh, merge mine sidechains and something like uh, a lot of these kind of scaling designs, if you have a censorship attack for a short period of time, then they can take your money, right? So like 51% of miners can take your money on a sidechain. Uh, if someone were to do a whole scale censorship attack over the course of a day or two days, they can take your money in a lightning channel, uh, etc. So you know, how do we make sure that this censorship resistance assumption actually kind of holds when today censorship resistance is provided by, I mean, you know, the argument that we have censorship resistance is that hash power is decentralized. And so theoretically, no one pool or one organization or one government or one whatever could censor transactions, could pull off a 51% attack, could any of these things. But that's not clearly the case today, right? Clearly, there is strong mining centralization. There is uh, the story around it is just not good. And so the question becomes, what can we do about it in the medium term? What kind of things can we do to affect that in the long term? And I think there's definitely some things to be done. And I think also that industry just needs to mature. Right. There's a lot of people who have been waiting for ASICs to kind of reach the plateau of current generation processes, which they're starting to. Right, We're, We have 10 nanometer ASICs in the Dragon Mints. Um, we might get seven nanometers at some point, but for the most part, we're kind of caught up with current generation processes and the processes aren't getting a lot better. Uh, the silicon processes are kind of towards the end of their possible lifespan and atoms are going to start quantum teleporting across transistors and all of a sudden your transistor doesn't do anything. So as we've gotten to this point, the mining market's going to start to mature a little bit more. I mean, we're talking about breaking up the Bitmain monopoly finally because people have enough money to go do a full run of 10 nanometer ASICs, the, the Dragon Mint guys being the example there. But there are other people who are talking about doing new ASICs. The, the Sciacoin guys are talking about doing Bitcoin ASICs. The... Um, as the eBang has some ASICs that are reasonably new generation. So, the, you know, people are starting to talk about how do we break up this monopoly? And then also the follow-on from that is breaking up the monopoly of people actually running mines. Now, luckily, the people actually running mines isn't as bad today as, you know, the, the pool story looks. But from the network's point of view, the pools are the miners. Right? The pools are selecting the transactions. The pools are selecting which block to build their work on. The pools are the ones who could censor. They're the ones who can do selfish mining attacks, whatever. But that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Right? An end user miner should be the one selecting transactions and selecting the previous block to mine on so that 
we get this hash rate decentralization property. Now, in the past, we've had that with P2 pool, right? We had this, this great uh, pool where it was completely peer-to-peer -peer and all of the miners worked together to pay each other by, but they would all do their own block selection. They all had their own full node. They all had their own mempool and they would all have their own transaction selection. Now, P2Pool had a number of issues, uh, largely on the UX front, but also just in the modern way that uh, mining farms have developed and the kind of industrialization of that, people do want this centralized pool. They want this, uh, for a lot of different reasons, largely uh, monitoring, hash rate monitoring of their farm. The pools often provide that. It's a great service. Um, often, sometimes, remote management of their hash rate that the pools can provide for them because they're a centralized party that they just you know have all their hash rate connected to. That said, there is a hybrid model here that is, again, not a new idea, but it's been something I've been working on actually implementing over the last little bit here, where you can have a completely centralized pool that can do hash rate monitoring, that can do remote management of some basic management functions, and that can receive all of the payout, can receive all of the reward and do the reward splitting and pay out the users uh, as required, but have the actual end user mining farms run a full node, select transactions, have a mempool, connect to the fiber network, select the previous block to mine on, and really all of the stuff that the network cares about. Because there's a separation of concerns here between the things that the network cares about and the things that the uh, miner and the mining pool care about. And if we can take the things that the network cares about and make those be at the endpoints and actually be decentralized, then all of the stuff that the miners and the mining pools care about, that can be as centralized as it wants to be. And that's just up to miners to want to trust some third party to receive their payout and do reward splitting. Um, so I've been working a bunch recently on designing a protocol around that, uh, replacing Stratum, replacing GitBlock template, uh, kind of replacing the whole mining stack for the most part, uh, which I've kind of finally been finishing up and publishing soon or will have published by the time this airs, hopefully, uh, if I actually get my work done. But uh, so I've got kind of a whole protocol written up. I've got a bunch of it implemented. I've mined some testnet blocks and am now you know, kind of socializing the idea a lot more and trying to explore where I can get this actually deployed, who has interest in using it, that kind of stuff. That's awesome. Uh, and so how, you know, is it easy to communicate with miners? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think for the most part, you know, the, the, the majority of miners who, you know, kind of bought ASICs and are running a farm, you know, they're not the pools, they're not the hardware manufacturers, you know, they work with the pools, they work with the hardware manufacturers, but mostly they are people of varying levels of interest in Bitcoin. You know, some of them actually aren't really that interested in Bitcoin, they just have cheap power and someone sold them a, block, a box they can plug in and get money out of. Some of them are really interested in Bitcoin, but, you know, mostly they're I mean, it's been very much industrialized. So mostly they are CEOs of a company that is a large scale operation that's very focused on how do we optimize our process? How do we get more miners in? How do we deal with the power company? How do we deal with utilities and people getting us power generation and deal with people? And like, how do we buy the next farm? And, you know, all of these concerns are the concerns they're worried about and not how do we make sure hash rate becomes more decentralized? They're worried more about, you know, how do we keep our business running in this crazy space that is fast paced and, you know, working with this really often kind of crappy hardware to make money. Right. And that just makes me think about the debate over what Bitcoin's governance should look like and whether it should be essentially, you know, voting with hash rate on BIPs. Uh, wh what are your thoughts on that? And it's a, yeah. a big topic, I know. I, but it, well, I mean, I, I think there's like a lot of miners don't want to 
vote on that. Some of the pools maybe do, but in terms of the, the hash rate operators themselves, I mean, certainly I think most of them, if there is probably a very small minority that feels comfortable enough with the Bitcoin protocol to have a strong opinion about something like that, let alone feel like they should be responsible for deciding it. Um, I think the pools definitely maybe a bit more so, obviously, you know, most of the pool operators spend a ton of time with the Bitcoin protocol and have a relative knowledge of it. But of course, having any one subset of the community make decisions on uh, Bitcoin's governance is nonsense. I mean, that would entirely defeat the point of Bitcoin. Uh, I have a blog post that I spent a bunch of time writing up kind of after 2x failed that I was going to publish and uh, never actually finished. And I feel bad about that. Maybe someday I'll go publish it. But I went into a bunch of detail and kind of made the suggestion that the way we think about changes in the Bitcoin community is that we should each individually think about stakeholder analysis of who are the stakeholders in Bitcoin? And I, you know, miners, users, exchanges, eh, node operators, whatever, you know, all of the various people who have interest in Bitcoin, for whatever reason they have interest in Bitcoin, is whatever change being proposed something that is going to negatively impact their ability to use Bitcoin to the point that, you know, if this change were to go through, they probably wouldn't be using Bitcoin. Maybe they'd switch to some alternative system, maybe they, who knows what, but they would just continue to have significant pain points as a result of this change. And if you see a reasonable stakeholder community who have pain points as a result of a change, then you should object to it on that basis, even if it's not you, even if you aren't the stakeholder who's going to be adversely impacted by something. And if you, and importantly, if you see other people who are objecting strongly to a change with logically functional arguments, uh, arguments that make a lot of sense, even if you disagree with them, you should be more than happy to reject a change purely based on that. And that the only way Bitcoin has value through this you know, decentralized lack of governance and keeping the status quo whenever there is disagreement is by people being willing to reject a change on the basis of other people's logical rejection of the change. So my playing devil's advocate on that is that let's take the case of 2X. Couldn't we argue that one constituency will be harmed if we don't increase the block size limit and another constituency will be harmed if we do. And that kind of puts us in a deadlock. Totally. But I think, I mean, that's absolutely the case. You know, obviously any change will have a large community of people who are positively impacted by that change. Otherwise, why would anyone be proposing a change? Um, but I think importantly, that's the importance of the status quo, right? Having, okay, well, we're going to push this change through that's really positively impacting this group of people, but really negatively impacting this group of people, even if the group of people that's being positively impacted is bigger, like that's just democracy. And like, you know, democracy is great, but we have coins governed by democracy. If you want to use a coin governed by democracy, I highly recommend the US dollar. It's incredibly stable. It's a great system. That's not what Bitcoin is for. Like Bitcoin can provide value to society in certain niches, but it's not going to provide value to society by being democracy coin and directly competing with the US dollar, at least not in the short term, or at least not in so far as it is able to be controlled by forces like that. So you've described on an individual level how we should uh, reason about governance from kind of our own personal subjective point of view. And then there's kind of a process of signaling, right? So do, do we just rely on Twitter hashtags and Samson's hats? <laughs> we need more decentralized hat making. Yeah, I mean, hat-based signaling has turned out to be really effective. Although I, I do agree that like the hat making in this community is very centralized. We need much more decentralized hat making. It's probably a problem. Um, but I, I think, you know, anytime people have proposed, well, we should have 
this clear decision-making process or this clear whatever, it always has drawbacks. Like every decision-making process has drawbacks. Every, as you point out, signaling mechanism has significant drawbacks. And so the only solution we have is to use all of them. And doesn't it also just come down to what software are people using? And so it's kind of proof of action. Yeah, I mean, hopefully signaling is something you do prior to committing to changing your software. It's something that always, you know, irked me more than a little bit about the 2x stuff and all of the previous forks is everyone was like, all right, we're now committing to running this thing. Like, no, 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 no. First, describe what it is. Second, create a proposal. Third, signal. Check if you see consensus and then commit to running the software. Like the software, switching your software should be the very last step. It should absolutely be status quo until you've gone through all of the signaling phases, you've created all the new software you want to switch to, you've documented it all, you've fleshed out the spec, and then only when you see, okay, I think there's consensus, then we should switch your software. Right. And... You know, until then, you see people running, you know, continuing to run the software they were already running, and lots of people signaling that, no, I'm not going to switch. Lots of people putting their money where their mouth is and investing in B1X and whatever else. I mean, those are all like, we have to use all of the signaling mechanisms, and all of those signaling mechanisms were clearly pointed in one direction, but. Well, and then the other thing, too, is does the software actually run? Uh, and. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Can it successfully mine a block after the hard fork? You know, that's kind of an important uh, important detail. That, that's the most hardcore status quo is like we have enough blocks as it is. I don't know if you can change the network by adding an additional. Yeah, check out the episode, uh, the noted episode, which was 0.2.0, where we discussed the bugs that prevented uh, 2x from uh, even functioning. They still have a few nodes. There's still like 10 nodes that are sitting there patiently waiting for a block to be mined. With, I believe there exists no software which can successfully mine a block. You would have to patch the 2x software. But I, I used this metaphor in the last episode, and I'm just going to recycle it. It's like the uh, Japanese soldier on the island who doesn't know that World War II finished, <laughs> and it's 1956. Yeah. 50 years later, yeah. 30 years later, it's still sitting there like, all right, What's going on, guys? <laughs> uh, and uh, so, yeah. speaking of you know governance and soft forks, like what what do you see coming down? Uh, you know, in terms of what the next soft forks are going to be. Uh, I, there, I know there was a email sent to the Bitcoin devs mailing list that kind of outlined some ideas about. Uh, a, I don't want to call it a roadmap. I'm trying not to say that word, but uh, a, a list of potential soft forks that. Uh, need to gather some some consensus and gather some community support and maybe get a few hats made. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we are in a fortunate position right now where things are a little bit quieter. We can keep our heads down, get some work done. Uh, there there has been a lot of back and forth recently. Uh, there's a lot of ideas floating around that kind of all form the amalgamation of things that should happen soon. Uh, it's kind of. Mast and Taproot and Graphroot is one kind of group of things of which we'll decide between or for all of them or something. Um, and then there's Schnorr signatures and possibly some signature aggregation stuff, um, which will form kind of next generation multisig and potentially even smaller transactions. Um, and there's also possibly the Sikash no input stuff that I mentioned that's part of L2. Um, uh, am I missing anything? I think that's probably about it. I think there's kind of just stuff in that area uh, is going to be what people are working towards right now. So there's been a lot of effort going into Schnorr finaliz uh, finalizing the Schnorr signature format stuff for Bitcoin or for use in Bitcoin. And then a lot of discussion around exactly what pieces of MAST and Graphroot and Taproot and signature aggregation and stuff should go in let's say, the first soft fork that gets proposed, uh, hopefully of many along these lines. Uh, but, but we'll see. Hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll start to see a lot of movement on that in the next six or 12 months as people 
finalize exactly what they want to propose as the first step. So with with Segway, we saw some controversy about the issue of soft forks versus hard forks uh, and whether uh, one is more coercive towards a certain constituency or set of constituencies than the other. Uh, how do you how do you think about that debate? I mean, I think, I mean, maybe this is her- heretical, but I think that certainly both sides there had a point. Like they're, they're, softworks can be slightly more coercive, uh, and especially softworks, you know, softworks shouldn't be moved forward on without consensus. I think obviously that argument was late, maybe a little bit overstated because certainly no one was going to use. No one's going to move their money into SegWit outputs if full nodes aren't enforcing those rules. If all the miners got together tomorrow and said, okay, we're now rolling out SegWit version 2. Look, we're running it on our nodes. You can go ahead and move your money into it. No one would move their money into that. It would be horribly insecure because the miners could turn around tomorrow and say, actually, no, now we're taking the money or actually, you know, there's now a new group of miners because more people have bought hash rate and then they could take the money. But without full nodes actually enforcing the rules, no one would use the software like that. Now, of course, that's not to say softworks can't be coercive. You know, I think extension blocks are a good example of this, where you can have a software system like an extension block, which can do any of the things a hard fork can do, can completely censor people. You know, you can have softworks that are super coercive and force people into a uh, change set that might not have consensus. And obviously, I think that shouldn't be any more or less acceptable than a hard fork that doesn't have consensus. Um, so I think obviously both need consensus and the types of soft forks we've done in Bitcoin are of the kind of very opt-in garden variety where you would not choose to put your money in it. You don't have to choose to put your money in it if you don't want to, and you would not choose to do so unless full nodes were actually enforcing those rules. Um, whereas there are other proposed types of softworks which don't meet those criteria, and I obviously am not a huge fan of those in general. Of course, we should also be willing to do hard forks. You know, hard forks shouldn't be this evil thing that we can never do, even if they are you know more dangerous and we have to be much more careful with them. But of course, you know, they should be something that's in our toolbox for when we need them. Assuming all of these, again, have a lot of consensus and go through this kind of signaling phase of, you know, human signaling on Twitter or by running the software or by wearing hats or by, you know, going on a exchange and shorting the opposite coin or whatever it is, you know, they all everything should have to go through that signaling phase. Uh, you, you brought up that we shouldn't be afraid of hard forks, and I don't want to put you in in uh, you know create controversy with this question. But are there things on the horizon that you think would make the risks of a hard fork, uh, the cost of a hard fork, you know, less than the benefits, or you know, the benefits are greater than the risks? You know what I mean? <laughs> um. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess I I didn't say we shouldn't be afraid of hard forks, right? We should be afraid of hard forks because hard forks do have more risk than soft forks, kind of inherently. That's that is the point of how soft forks came about. That said, I'm going to run and grab my charger because my laptop's about to die. That's fine. <laughs> I'll edit this he's, out. He's evading. He's evading the question. <laughs> I might edit out his answer to the question as well. <laughs> Michael and I were joking that uh, you had to go ask Alex and Suhas how to answer this question <laughs> so that you don't get, get Chain Code Labs in trouble. Oh, uh, no, very important. Um, Things that are worth hard forking over. We were providing yeah. a honeypot uh, for you to walk into, <laughs> reveal your wish list. Um, we shouldn't be afraid of hard forks. I think... Uh, to an extent, you know, any, if, if we start talking about future block size increases, we might want to look at doing that as a hard fork, um, especially if we are looking at them kind of post-SegWit. The, because we have SegWit and we have, you know, it's much easier to scale. We don't have a lot of nonlinear scaling aspects of block size. 
um, we can start to talk about playing with some of those numbers and, and cleaning things up, uh, cleaning up some of the incentives of UTXO creation and destruction and stuff like that in ways that we couldn't necessarily do with the soft fork. So I think that that would be cool. Uh, assuming we, we do another block size increase in the medium term future, you know, I, I'd love to see one in principle, but at the same time, uh, we, we really need to have a fee market at some point, preferably sooner rather than later. And, and obviously over the last few months, we've completely lost one and, and currently don't have one at all. So, you know, seeing the kind of user uptick and, you know, hopefully the entire transaction volume doesn't disappear onto lightning and, and whatever else, um, you know, assuming we have that kind of user uptake and start getting fee pressure again, you know, talking about uh, block size increase hard fork, I think would be, would be interesting. Uh, there's obviously the... Uh, time roll hard fork that will have to happen eventually. Uh, 2038, I guess, is when we run out of timestamp bits where we're going to have to do a hard fork of some kind. Uh, so we, you know, we'll do something by that point, I suppose. Yeah, so 2038, that's in 20 years. If I, if I were to ask what is the medium term, I would say 20 years is a reasonable medium term in my mind, but Maybe I'm I'm thinking a bit too long term. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's that's uh you know I, I think twenty years is a timeline we should be aware of, if not necessarily planning explicitly for. Yeah, uh, and then one you know you mentioned uh, activity going from on chain onto Lightning and making the situation even worse in terms of having fee pressure. I liked your your coworker John Newberry's theory on this uh, with regards to the Jevons paradox, meaning that uh, by increasing the efficiency of a Bitcoin transaction and increasing its utility, uh, we'll see even more on-chain activity of people opening opening and closing channels uh, and enabling uh, Lightning Network, and thus maybe seeing more fee pressure due to the Lightning re- Network rather than less. I hope so. I mean, I'd love to see that. Uh, Obviously, it's a different type of user, right? So users today moving money between exchanges to ARB price differences. Well, I mean, those are centralized exchanges. They have one lightning channel between them, and that's sufficient. Uh, Whereas the increase in utility of a Bitcoin transaction, you're looking at onboarding more average people, people who need to use Bitcoin for whatever reason and want, you know, a coffee purchasing experience around Bitcoin, an average cash experience around Bitcoin, which is something that obviously still needs to be built out a lot and is going to take longer to build out than just building out, you know, lightning channels between exchanges or other backend services. But, and, and, and also requires a lot of onboarding a ton of new types of users that frankly really haven't been using Bitcoin or really any cryptocurrency today. Um, so, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that that ends up being being the case. Right. And I, I don't want to bike shit on the block size limit too too much, but, you know, the, the, the last proposal we were offered was a straight up doubling. And I've always had in mind that we would want a schedule of marginal increases of like 50 kilobytes per quarter or something like that so that the fee pressure, the you know, the the mempool doesn't just get wiped out on day zero. Yeah, that makes way more sense. It's always made way more sense to me. I don't know why anyone was still stuck on the like doubling proposals. Well, they just want it now. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we're we're up to thirty two meg uh, megabytes now for those huge blocks. You know, all of the transactions going through the the Bcash network is. Yeah, with all the people using Bcash. I mean, there's like you know all of what like twenty people who use Bcash. They can fill those blocks, you know, if they really try, they really put their mind to it. They have to drink a lot of coffee. They might be really over-caffeinated, though. <laughs> Michael, did you have any uh, closing questions? Um, well, one thing we didn't talk about too much uh, with regards to, to mining and block propagation is just uh, your work on the fiber network. Um, and I was wondering if you could give listeners just an overview of, of what the fiber network is and, and how it benefits the, the Bitcoin network. Yeah, so fiber is one of those kind of backend things that exists and is important, but you don't hear about because no no average user cares about it. It's really only something that miners and really pools care about today. Um, But it's a very, very efficient way to transfer blocks between servers, 
when bandwidth isn't a concern, right? So if you have bandwidth and you don't really care about using all of your available bandwidth just to submit a block as fast as you can, it is by far the fastest way to transmit arbitrary Bitcoin blocks that exist. I say arbitrary Bitcoin blocks, it's obviously faster if you are creating a Bitcoin block for you to transmit it because you can, I mean, you create a Bitcoin block before you finish mining it, right? You create a Bitcoin block, you send it to the ASICs, and then you get back at nonce. So you can broadcast the block to all of your servers before you find the actual block. And when you get the nonce, you just have to broadcast the nonce. So that's obviously by far the most efficient way to broadcast blocks, and many pools do that. But to broadcast an arbitrary block, or for example, if another pool finds a block and you want to get it back to your server as fast as possible, then fiber is by far the most efficient way. And it, it uses a number of really cool techniques, uh, forward error correction, and it uses uh, UDP and it just floods your entire connection. It doesn't do any rate limiting or bandwidth limiting or anything like that um, to just try to get the block to the other end. and it is fast because it has no round trips, right? So uh, you start sending out data, and once the other side gets enough data, it will be able to reconstruct the block without ever having to ask uh, you for something else, right? So anything that's based on TCP, uh, any of the current low bandwidth block relay stuff, like compact blocks, um, they use some number of round trips. And if you have low packet loss, it won't be that many round trips. But when you're talking about crossing an ocean, when a round trip is 80 milliseconds, well, that's not trivial because you want to get around the world in like 200. So one round trip just destroys the uh, latency that you want to have for your block propagation. So I spent a bunch of time building the fiber stuff. I now run a fiber network, a network of nodes that uses the software, but a few other pools also run their own uh, network using the fiber software and most pools or at least a lot of hash rate connects directly to those nodes and submits their blocks directly to those so I you know have the ability to see a bunch of blocks really quickly and then I transmit them around the globe really quickly and get them to all the other pools really quickly uh, so between that and compact blocks and a few other things we've cut down the orphan rate in the Bitcoin network massively uh, we, we see very, very few orphans anymore, which tells us that the orphans that do happen are orphans on kind of the other end where the ASIC wasn't fast enough sending the share back to the pool or the pool wasn't fast enough uh, finding switching to the new block after it received the previous block. Um, but we see very few orphans on the network. And they say Bitcoin is killing babies. <laughs> we saw a huge run up last year uh, in the price and it basically, you know, went up tenfold. Me personally, I'm I'm the permable. I always think it's going to continue going up. Uh, but do you think that the, you know, obviously the well, happening aside, the value of the revenue from Bitcoin mining, I think, is going to continue to increase. Uh, do you think that's going to affect the network infrastructure more than it has over the past? Because it, you know, fiber works well enough that. It doesn't, you know, there, we haven't seen any uh, complaints about it, or I haven't. Yeah, I mean, so network-wise, remember that obviously, you know, the difficulty will adjust to any amount of new hash rate, so the block rate isn't going to change. And network-wise, mostly what we care about is the block rate. And so, you know, new hash rate, hash rate profitability going up. I mean, of course, remember the bandwidth between a farm and a pool, at least if they're using a stratum proxy and doing things efficiently, is, I mean, you can do it over a dial-up connection, like literally. Like there's no reason that it should use any real amount of bandwidth. And that's also something that's not gonna change no matter how much uh, uh, hash power is on the network, right? So I, yeah, I mean, I don't think that new hash rate coming in, all of this excitement or value going up is going to materially change the network infrastructure. I mean, you know, fiber pretty reliably is only a few milliseconds fast or slower than the speed of light between the servers. So you can't really improve on that, right? <laughs> speed of light, speed of light, like you can't get any faster. Um, so I would be surprised if we saw a ton of additional advancements in the network propagation uh, outside of just, you know, maybe more people running fiber, more people connecting to fiber, the public fiber network, stuff like that. Got it. 
and I have one last question because this is one of my favorite topics is um, one of the sound bites we'll hear from people who are often Bcash proponents, but also among Bitcoiners as well, is that a non-mining node is useless and mining nodes are the only thing that matter. Um, but there are mining non-nodes, right? And that has caused a problem in the past when miners have not been verifying blocks and transactions. And I think it caused a problem with a soft fork in the past. Do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, certainly one of the things miners have done historically when block propagation wasn't as good as they wanted it to be was they do this thing called spy mining. Uh, there's a great article by Aaron Van Burdum at Bitcoin Magazine. For those who aren't familiar with spy mining, I recommend you go read it. Um, but essentially what it is, is instead of using their node to select transactions or see blocks or validate anything whatsoever, they just look at what other pools are mining on and assume that that is fine and mine based on that. Um, and then there was, as you point out, there was a case where they were using this, someone mined an invalid block because they like hadn't updated their node after a software or something like that. And as a result, a bunch of other miners were just mining invalid crap for a very long period of time because they were just all copying each other. Uh, they didn't validate anything, had no idea whether there was even a block with the hash they were mining on, um, but they were just copying each other. And, and so that did, <laughs> that has caused problems. And, and yeah, as you point out, the like non-mining nodes are useless argument, it, it, that's just so wholly uninteresting. I mean, it's just so sure if we were in a world where, you know, as Satoshi envisioned it, everyone would have a node that is mining and everyone would have some vaguely equal distribution of hash power and everyone's phone had exactly one over the population of the earth in hash power, then fine, maybe non-mining nodes would be uninteresting, but that's not the world we live in. And if you want to stick your head in the sand and pretend that hash rate is somehow decentralized or that pools are decentralized, uh, especially, I mean, it's like even worse on Bcash, like how can you claim something like that? Uh, then maybe, uh, then like your argument is just utter nonsense. I mean, it's just an argument in favor of defending a position. It's not an argument that has any factual backing whatsoever. Is that a sufficient rant for you? That's exactly what I was looking for. Thank you. <laughs> That's the uh, dessert after the uh, entree. All right. I really appreciate you coming on today, Matt. Uh, do you want to have some closing thoughts uh, where people can contact you? Yeah. I mean, uh, my Twitter DMs are publicly open. Please no sketchy random crap. Please no ICOs. Occasionally, if you try to pitch me an ICO, I will helpfully point out that what you just did is a felony in the U.S., uh, and you might want to contact your, your legal representative. Um, but otherwise, you know, Twitter DMs always open. I'm at the Blue Mat on Twitter. I'm the Blue Mat on GitHub. Uh, you can check out my work on Bitcoin Core and various other projects there. Um, but yeah, I'm always around. Awesome. And if someone in our audience is uh, wanting to learn Rust, uh, I'll remind them that they should go check out your GitHub and see uh, the lightning work that you've been doing there yeah the uh the rust bitcoin community is great so that's github.com slash rust dash bitcoin uh there's a number of projects there including rust lightning including a few others uh that are ripe for contribution awesome thanks matt awesome thanks forgive or wait to settle the score <laughs> uh you know what this is kind of a question that okay so forgive if you can forgive people forgive them. that's cool yeah. now here's the thing you got that little thing eating in the back of your mind because you want to settle the score i know i do so you really I, don't I, forget i'd, I'd love, it, I'd love to it. tell you like hey just forgive and forget right but but it's hard to do that sometimes especially yeah. if well certain situations merit you know a little bit it's hard to make that happen a little something a little something extra special but this is what's interesting forgiving someone is actually a form of settling the score. Hmm. If you can think about this. Mm -hmm. So for me, the best revenge you can take on someone is success, right? Mm -hmm. Is ignoring them. And the best revenge is not even letting them know that you even think about them anymore. Yeah. 
That's the best revenge in my mind. So you forgive them and you just move on. Yeah. I think that's the best thing to do. Forgive them, move on, and go kick ass in the world. Yeah. And the little part of your brain that really wants to take revenge, you'll be taking the best possible revenge you can. You'll be doing it in the best possible way, and it'll be the best for you as a human being. Yeah. So that's what you do. Yeah. So yeah, I forgive you. And then you go kick ass. Yeah. 